0: The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. On today's episode, the Trident Room host, James Riley, sits down with Lieutenant Ryan Newmeyer.
1: Backstory, me and Ryan were... At the Coast Guard Academy together, we'll talk about commissioning sources. Some other point that was we we basically I graduated, I didn't hear from you at all until.
0: DLI. You make it sound like I just cut you out of my life. No, like, no, good lord, <laughs> that happened to a lot of people. Yeah. So Well, you're in even years, so nobody cares about you. There you go. Yeah. That's <laughs> the, the, the odd years, uh, yeah. <laughs> odd <laughs> years even, are the
1: best years. I don't know what you're talking about. I think the even years had more fun. But mm, that's, that's probably <laughs> true. <laughs> you, get, you
0: graduate. Where do you go? I was in the dead center of my class, so I had no illusions of getting San Diego. But like everybody says, don't put something on your dream sheet that you aren't expecting or will be happy with. So I was quite pleasantly surprised to, to open my envelope and find out that I was going to, to San Diego on the now decommissioned Cutter Hamilton. Uh, rest in peace. And spent two years there and the vast majority of my time. But we we would come out and we would turn left um, and, and head south and do counter-narcotics patrols for the longest time. Um, I, I distinctly remember, what was it? It was probably our Third patrol, uh, we were pulling into El Salvador to unload um, our HITRON so the counter narcotics helicopter and all of the support gear to go shoot out the engines of GoFast, and we were pulling into Alcahula, and that that morning, because um, we we're you know still in Pacific time, uh, was the earthquake in Haiti, and Hamilton was the only operational three seventy eight in the entire fleet. So out of the 13, there was only one that could get underway, and we were the one. And so there was a huge discussion of, are we going to go through the Panama Canal? Um, And nobody knew anything. It was all being worked out in in Washington. And sure enough, we were, in the span of eight hours, we were told, all right, um, make best speed, which for a 378 is not great, um, because while we may have two gas turbines and on paper a three seventy eight can go thirty knots, that thirty knots, like the whole ship is shaking. You think it's gonna break at the seams, and invariably one of your gas turbine engines is just gonna blow up.
1: Oh yeah, and and so were you deck side or engineering side? Deck Which, side. Deck okay. Side.
0: Yeah, engineering and I don't uh, don't get along. No, um, but uh, so we go through the Panama Canal and we were the first cutter to go through the canal in years um, because you were a land ship or you are a pack ship and neither of the two shall cross. Now now we send cutters through the Panama Canal like it's, you know, a regular occurrence but that was a huge deal for a 378 or any Coast Guard cutter to go through the canal. And then we did Haiti Ops for 45 days and, and that was like awesome. And then, Went back to doing counter-narcotics missions for another year or so, and then Hamilton gets decommissioned in March of 2011 um, after our final patrol up in the Bering Sea, which was an experience in and of itself. And then after that, I, because uh, uh, my dad was in the Navy, um, he was a surface warfare officer, so I kind of wanted to see what I missed out on not going to the Naval Academy, Um and so I, I did the my first exchange tour uh, because it's a little known program, but and I don't know how many people learn it now. But no,
1: yeah. So tell me about this. What 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 is the exchange tour program?
0: So, at any given time, when I was going through it, there were five. Um, I don't know what the numbers are now, but there there are X number of Coast Guard officers in their second tour who are serving as navigators, um, on board. Uh, surface ships in the Navy, whether it's a cruiser or a destroyer, or I, I don't think they're on LCS, but they could be. I don't know. Okay. Um, LCS was still kind of a new program. Um, they were still, like, pumping them out, and they were just... We weren't on them yet. But you serve as a navigator, um, and it's an awesome experience. It's very different. You uh, see a very different side of um, surface ship communities. Uh, the Navy is very different than the Coast Guard and how we run our bridges um, with the number of people on there, just the whole qualification process. So I, you know, in 2011 to 13, I served on uh, the USS Mason out of Norfolk. Cool. Met her on deployment, uh, so I got to do the Suez Canal. So I've done both of the major canals in the world, which is a pretty cool, cool accomplishment. I have the certificates on, on my wall. Uh, But it it was a very eye-opening experience. Um, A lot of people at the time referred, says that any time you do an exchange tour with the DoD, especially when you're a junior officer, it's your Coast Guard appreciation tour because you kind of come back and you're like, wow. The amount of responsibility that is pushed down on the junior-most people in the Coast Guard is pretty impressive Um, and, and relatively unheard of within the joint force. But... So I did two years there. Got my got my SWO pen, Um something that you actually can't do anymore because the Navy Surface Warfare Community changed their their rules in twenty eighteen in response to no yeah twenty eighteen in response to the incidents with USS Fitzgerald and USS John S McCain.
1: Was there anything you took from the Navy
0: further on in your career? I mean, there was because eventually I went back. I did a second exchange form after my... So after I left the Destroyer, I had a, a pretty cool opportunity um, when I didn't get selected for command um, where I screened for command coming off the Destroyer, but I didn't get selected, which is, you know, devastating at first, but then actually I think worked out well for the long run because I then, after I left the Destroyer, I went to go be the flag aide for the District 11 commander, which at the time... Uh, was Admiral Schultz when he was a one-star. Now, the Commandant of the Coast Guard. But that was a great, great opportunity um, to spend a year with him and then a year with Admiral Servidio, who relieved him halfway through my tour. Um, because it it gave me the opportunity to broaden my like um, understanding of the Coast Guard operating at the 37,000-foot strategic level. So D11 um, it is a pretty unique district in that it has, the California-Oregon border all the way down to, to Ecuador um, and then inland to the Rockies. Uh, and so, like, it has a pretty diverse mission set, including, you know, the ports of Los Angeles-Long Beach, um, San Diego, you know, Stockton, Oak, Oakton. So there's a lot of prevention stuff that I was, um, I got exposure to. And so as a service officer who had done four years of flow, Going to the flag staff to understand different parts of how the service operates, specifically like the the prevention side in the ports of Los Angeles Long Beach, which is a fascinating experience, was really cool for me because I got a deeper understanding of the other missions. Like I said, Cutterman can do a lot of things. We were great at doing a lot of things, specifically, you know, law enforcement cutters. But it was cool seeing like the prevention guys going on board container ships and seeing how they do their thing, and you know the cruise ship inspection stuff, because that's a part that we, as specifically as cuttermen, don't understand. Is that, and, and I think the public in general, like any cruise ship that comes into the United States is inspected. Usually, yeah. overseas, when they're building it, like I have friends that are are doing cruise ship inspections in France and Sweden and all those other places. I mean, as those those are
1: them. yeah, and those are Coast Guard positions. Yeah,
0: hundred percent Coast Guard yeah. officers that fly all over. Um, to, to go see the cruise ships as they're being inspected or as they're being built to make sure that they're doing the required training. They have all the safety equipment because any ship that comes into the port is, is subject to our, uh, we don't have exclusive jurisdiction, but we have a lot of jurisdiction over those vessels for the peace and security of the port and stuff like that. So it was very cool to like see that and see kind of how at the port level, at the local level, the sector level, they have to integrate with the, the commercial side of the house.
1: And so, and at this point, you're an admiral's aide, uh, working for the the admiral that is in charge of basically the the the, the territory that covers yep. most of California, and then and and so
0: coast so, guard operations all over. So and LA is a huge part of that. LA is a huge part of that, especially the port, the um, the the actual commercial port, because still forty percent of U.S. commerce goes in and out of the ports, the the unified ports. Uh, of los angeles long beach which i didn't know at the time are two different port complexes because the city of los angeles owns the port of la long beach is a little bit different but um it's it's fascinating They, they they essentially like if you look at google earth they're the same place but they are completely different completely different beasts um which was just fascinating to see it an eye-opening to see how all of that stuff happens. And, you know, when I was down there, um, I think it was uh, it was one of the Chinese shipping companies had just started, because this was 2013 to 2015, was just starting to build up the automated uh, port complex where everything was being done by automation and that since kind of, like, expanded elsewhere in the port. But it was very interesting to, like, see those operations get started um and just containers just moving and how like it was just in time delivery and i think if if you look at the news now you can see that there's a very long line of ships sitting outside of the port of los angeles on the ports of los angeles long beach waiting to come in
1: yes yeah the, the just in time stuff is definitely like and and I, I think not due to us thankfully oh yeah definitely think, not
0: due to the coast guard this is no. not a coast guard problem <laughs>
1: No, yeah, I think it, it's getting it off the ships and onto trucks is now the big thing. Mm. But
0: and so getting containers, but
1: so and then as a as an aide, you're, um, I mean basically just just more or less following the admiral.
0: Yeah, you keep and, them on. You keep them on schedule. Okay. Um, and, and to steal a line from like Hamilton, a lot of times you're like in the room where it happens, so you see where how the policy is formulated. Kind of the thought process that goes into the policy and kind of the process by which decisions are made, whether you agree with them or you don't. And I agreed with a lot of them and I agree. I didn't agree with a lot of the decisions that were made at the time, um, as did the admiral. But um, it was a fascinating process to see how the service kind of made and arrived at these decisions and kind of the competing priorities and whose pet projects were what and kind of the personality dynamics that were also involved and, and it was a, it was a great great opportunity and I, I always encourage junior officers or anybody who has the opportunity to be a flag aide to take that opportunity it's it's a pretty thankless job at times but um Admiral Ryan, who was, um, when she was in 04, uh, she was the flag the mil- military aide to the president um, during the President Clinton reelect, And so she was flying all over the world, like, blistering the paint off of, uh, of Air Force One, because um, apparently the president was always running behind schedule, but... I I asked her. I was like, "Ma'am, what what was that like?" And and she kind of summed it up the right way. So she said, "You know, Ryan, it's it's like having tickets to the Super Bowl and sitting on the fifty yard line. The view is amazing, but it comes at a price. And, and there, like anything, especially in my career, I've had these awesome opportunities, but everything comes with a price, and, and you you pay the price and you see what it's like. And I." So far, I have not been disappointed in the cost, um, but it it it's a pretty cool view. But you know, you have to. There's trade offs. Like your schedule is no longer your own. You you see yeah, two years of your life to somebody else.
1: Yeah, and and it's not. Yeah, that's not. That's that's two years with what? How many? How many? How much time at home?
0: It depends. Like yeah. I was lucky because I had two admirals that valued home life, but I know a bunch of flaggates that just didn't have that opportunity.
1: Yeah, and are just never home basically. Yet. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So
0: out of that I went to Puerto Rico. Oh, okay. Cool. And that was an awesome opportunity because that was at the still very early stages of bringing the uh fast response cutters online, um which you know, when I left when I left the destroyer, I wanted I wanted command. I wanted my my own patrol boat. I wanted to be the the last great kingdom in the world, and
1: and you're what you're you're junior uh, lieutenant. Yeah, junior lieutenant. I just lieutenant.
0: pinned on lieutenant.
1: So you're CEO of an FRC. Yes. A newly commissioned FRC yes. in Puerto Rico. That's incredible, uh, as far as an experience goes.
0: Yeah, I, I tell this to a lot of people. Like, <laughs> you're giving a 29 year old the keys to a Maserati, and especially in Puerto Rico. You're, you're kind of asking him to be, like, Captain Jack Sparrow. Like, you get to... Because of the Coast Guard law enforcement mission set, you go out and you're boarding boats that are, you know, smuggling people or drugs and, you know, detaining the, the smugglers and kind of rescuing the, the migrants um, from, from dangerous situations. And, and you're 29. And you have sole authority. And you, like I said... It's one of the last great kingdoms in the world to be command of your own ship
1: and and tell me so the I've always been interested in this um and I know Puerto Rico is its own animal so uh, because <laughs> you is. know you you're so far removed from any other you know the the, the u s mainland to be frank, mm-hmm. but also you know any of the, sort of the major coast guard infrastructure right. so so you're the person you're reporting to.
0: So we report to the, the sector. And underneath the sector construct, you have the sector commander, the deputy sector commander. And then you have kind of those three kind of three or four different departments. Response being one of them. Um, prevention being another. Logistics. And then... Um,
1: and these are basically equivalent to kind of like surface line type jobs in the Navy where... Except... Uh, uh, I mean, a little more command responsibility um and and a little more operational responsibility.
0: Yeah. so it's not a clean line. It's really not no, but the sector response officer uh, is either an o four or or an o five and it, you kind of want to think of them as the squadron slash strike group n three n five. Okay, is kind of it's it's a really bad analogy, but it's like the closest I can get because they're they're in charge of like operations, um, so Got I it. don't keep using the word response. They're in charge with a lot of like the response operation, the day to day operations of the the assets that go out and do like hands on missions, like coastal boarding, like boarding law enforcement boardings, search and rescue operations, stuff like that. All run underneath the ops the response department. Prevention does a lot of the, the left of bang. like they're responsible for the port security uh, of like the container terminals and doing the port state control uh, inspections and stuff like that. But I, re, I I reported to the sector sector response officer.
1: So in um, 04, is o, basically.
0: 04 is an enforcement. Um, 05 was a response officer and they okay. reported to the 06 deputy and sector commanders. Got it. Both of them are 06s in, in San Juan.
1: Well, yeah, and so, so, what type of direction do you get from them as far as what to do and where to go and things like that?
0: They kind of handle the cases. So when I was there, it's it's changed a little bit, I think, from my from my understanding, where JF um, South has a little bit more say in the kind of the operations of some of the FRCs because the services has adapted the way we we use them because the FRCs are such a capable platform; they're able to actually go deeper down into the Caribbean. Um but when I was there the sector response officer worked directly with JATF in, in in district 7 to kind of do the counter narcotics mission set and they like the sector response would then direct us if we needed to do um migrant and addiction operations but you know we would go and do you know we would run down um uh Drug smuggling vessels from all over. And the, the law enforcement remit for San Juan basically went as far west as uh, the uh, Haiti Dominican Republic border, and then as far east as um, the, the Lesser Antilles. So all of those islands down there were all under the remit, the law enforcement and search and rescue remit, remit of Sector San Juan. Um and so I remember and it was one of the coolest um opportunities that I had uh was I I was we were on patrol uh guarding the Mona Island which is an a super small speck of land dead smack in the middle of the uh the Mona Passage which separates uh the eastern tip of the Dominican Republic with the western tip of mainland um Puerto Rico, and this was still under uh, I think this was still under the wet foot dry foot policy. So Alright, explain was a, the wet foot dry foot policy. <laughs> ah. Oh, the wet foot dry foot policy. A very complicated policy um, that is resulting from the Cuban Adjustment Act of 95, I believe, when it was either 095 or 96. A very
1: important sort of a uh, uh, strategic-type policy for, for the, the Coast Guard interaction with, with, with migrants.
0: Especially Cuban migrants.
1: Especially Cuban migrants. So, um, uh, yes, please, go ahead.
0: And so it, it stems from the fact that our relationship with Cuba is fraught with, like, intricacies and trapdoors and not just recent history, but a very long history of mistrust and um, slights on, on both sides. And, and so when uh, the current regime uh, of Cuba uh, initially started under Fidel, Fidel Castro, there was some flow of goods and people and have you um, that stopped. And then, you know, we would, People were still able to travel a little bit. But but in the late 80s, um, you had the Mariel boat lift, where basically there were protests, uh, Cuban protests against the government uh, not allowing people to leave. So Fidel said, fine, if you want to go, then go, and kind of facilitated a mass migration um,
1: to Miami. To basically. Miami.
0: Yeah, to Miami. Basically, there were boats that came from. He, the the border was open for like a period of time. So all of the boats came down from Miami to load up all of the relatives and bring them back and that was fine. And then kind of the borders kind of got it a little bit sealed. And this, um, that,
1: that's basically the opening to Scarface if you guys want some sort of visual yes. reference of of what happened. But continue.
0: Um and so <laughs> when the Nandies start rolling around, um Cuba changes their stance towards repatriation. And basically because they didn't want any mixing of people, to, of ideologies. So if you made it feet dry, so if you touched dry land in the United States, you were immediately dirty, to, to use this parlance. Um, and so they wouldn't accept you back. And so you may have illegally immigrated to the United States because there are legal pathways to immigrate into the United States through the U.S. Embassy, and there there always has been. People who illegally entered the United States um, via the maritime means or the land border uh, with Texas, we couldn't repatriate them back to Cuba because Cuba wouldn't accept them. And so the Cuban Adjustment Act was passed and essentially created a carve out that because we can't just declare people stateless and deport them to nowhere, uh, and their home country wouldn't accept them, after a year in the United States, uh, you were fast-tracked towards legal permanent resident status with a pathway towards ultimate citizenship and naturalization. So that was the policy. From 1996 until 2017. Um, and that was also kind of the the nadir of the relationships between our two countries.
1: And so so to reiterate, as a Cuban trying to get out of Cuba, what you had to do was set foot on dry land. Yes. And that was any type of dry land. Yes. So, so if you rolled up on Miami Beach and... St- was a, were able to get your ankles out of the water and onto that beach, you were considered a refugee and, and accepted into the U.S. refugee system um, and happened to be any other territory yep. that um, which uh, not many people know that Mona Island, the island that you speak of, is the closest territory to the Dominican Republic.
0: Yes. And so there there's Supreme Court rulings on uh, on kind of the Cuban Adjustment Act and the Wet Foot Drive foot policy. Um I think it's like the 7 mile bridge or something like that. Um where they didn't even need to get onto like contiguous land. They got on the pylon of like a decrepit bridge and that was considered good enough for the US government. Um But Simona Island is 15 20 miles? I think it's 20 miles. Um because i think the whole whole span is like 32 between dr and uh, the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico but That
1: sounds right. It's halfway.
0: Yeah, it's halfway. And, and so like you would run from uh Cuba to the Dominican Republic and then they would get on boats and go 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 to Mona or Destacheo or uh kind of Mona Another yeah. Another sm- another small little island that is not great.
1: No, these are very small islands with Really dangerous to get on. Um, and and no running water. Uh, oh, God, no. No, no uh, shade. That's yeah, all this, mean, this scrub, basically.
0: Mona is a nature preserve, and there are, like, five, maybe, Puerto Rican uh, park, Parks Department people that live on there to maintain, for international law purposes, a, like, permanent foothold on the island. Um, and so it's a nature reserve, so there's nothing there um people can go there like for ecotourism, uh but like you can't stay there and so like we would be going down there so I get this call because we were refueling in in Mayaguez which is on the the far western part of the island and co five saying you know how how crazy are you I said well it depends on what the mission is and it was can you get to um Barbados in 24 hours and I said I don't know. Let me do the math. Like I'm not getting. I'm getting a sandwich at like the the sandwich shop in Mayaguez. Like i Yeah, in Puerto time. Rico
1: on the West Coast. Yeah, refueling,
0: like... taking taking a quick break from getting you know my you know teeth bashed in because the seas aren't great in the Mona Passage. So I get back, do the do the math, and I can get there in 24 hours. And he basically gives me um, kind of. To steal another movie reference the godfather offer i can't refuse so it gives me this mission to to go hunt for um kind of a, a high important drug case that uh went after and i had you know 24 hours to get to barbados or uh, not Bar- yeah barbados pulling to bridge down and you know met and like all right refueling there quick stop to like refuel and then get down to turn and tobago uh, and do this kind of combined operation to go after this drug boat with the the Trinidad and Tobago um, Coast Guard, which is their version of the Navy. Um, and, and it was a, just awesome opportunity. We eventually, operating off the, the northeast coast of South America, run down this drug boat and interdict 4.2 tons of cocaine. Wow. Which was... I mean, it still is, as far as I know, the largest patrol boat bust, uh, patrol boat interdiction of cocaine in the Atlantic. Um, I mean, it could have been eclipsed because we now have cutters operating in the Eastern pa- fast response cutters operating in the Eastern Pacific, which just illustrates the legs of these, these ships that are just game changers for the Coast Guard um, in terms of counter narcotics and just missions in general. Um, but it, it was such a cool, cool operation to be like, 29 and and the coast Guard, just the the IT package wasn't great so like you're operating very much off the off the grid off the far side of the world with you know your your mission um to, to go out and do you know the business of the United States government and, and it was it was awesome like you you have a, a small coast close-knit crew of 20 24 25 and you're incredibly self-reliant on them and you're Then at the same time, you know, doing international relations by doing this combined operation with another nation who, they're they're recapitalizing they were recapitalizing their ships at the same time, so they had a vested interest in getting this mission accomplished as well, so they can go back to their 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 government and say like, listen, this is the opportunity that we had, and this is what we capitalize on. So like, there was a lot of, um external pressure and some internal pressure to put on myself to like get it done and get it done successfully because there was a lot of eyes on you when you do that um and it was it was awesome like it was such a cool cool feeling to then um I mean not necessarily the the toe because we interdicted essentially a, a shrimp fishing boat a la Forrest Gump Um, So towing that a long distance was not great, especially when I was like running low on fuel. Um, That was not a pleasant experience. Didn't get a lot of sleep then, but it was such a great experience to like be at the very pointy end of some of these things that we talk about um, in Washington about international affairs and politics and working with other people and kind of the, the Coast Guard's ability to just to seamlessly integrate with our partners in the Caribbean, and you know, show value to them, and just reaffirm some relationships that don't necessarily get worked by the, our larger DoD, you know, siblings. Um, and, and it was it was a lot of fun to carry four point two tons of cocaine into into Puerto Rico with like the battle flag flying and just all of the press and, like you know you get that little snippet in like the New York Times. That's very cool. And yeah, like, I, I think, was I was in the New York Times for like the good reasons rather than the bad reasons, which is the side you want to be on when you're the CEO of a ship. Yes. Yes, definitely.
1: That's yeah. And I I I agree. I think uh one aspect of what we can do as far as improving international relations and we and, and I know working with Jayadaf, we we so this isn't, you know, the 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 Coast Guard just happens to be The sort of operator in this but we're we're going off of intel that has been collected by multiple different joint forces that are working in that area as well and um the the fact that we can do that and and work with another country and you know two countries both agree drugs bad yep let's 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 band together against this and 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 that that's a huge benefit to relations to international relations so which which we can you know we we can really leverage that uh especially in areas where you know potentially the relations we have with the country aren't the greatest if we can say we can help you out with you know your drug problem uh, that 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 can be a, a huge entryway into you know, opening up better relations with the country, which is, uh, I think, a, a strategic benefit. Uh, no,
0: no, it is. And, and F South does a lot of lot of good things. They they definitely help, you know, steer us towards where we should be positioned and kind of help us position cutters. And may not always give us exact details on certain cases and, and stuff like that. But they are they are good because they do compile information and then kind of help disseminate it out. And, you know, we, luckily there, there are a lot of different liaison officers in, in, and around JADEP, uh, that we, we do, we are able to pass information along to, to help other entities do those, those interdictions. Um, and that, that is JADEP is just an interesting case study of an interagency operation that does work, uh, not without problems, but pretty seamless at this point. I mean, it's been a been a, been around and evolved over, at this point, probably 30-some-odd years, if I had to make a guess. Yeah, I
1: would say so. That's uh, probably one of the first, you know, real, truly joint. Uh, yeah, joint
0: interagency systems, I would, but, I would have to say. You know, they definitely help the Coast Guard position ships where they're most likely to be um, able to, to affect some sort of of interdiction um and don't necessarily give us exact queuing um but they're they're definitely good at providing information for sure thanks for joining us in the trident room for more information about today's guests and topics please visit the show notes the trident room podcast has been brought to you by the naval postgraduate school alumni association and foundation for questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at host at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tritroompodcast.